This is episode 182 of That Shakespeare Life. Have you checked out the video streaming library from That Shakespeare Life? We have an entire collection of activities, games, recipes, exclusive interviews, and more, all commercial-free and helpfully organized into playlists that include documentary films, animated plays, and so much more, straight from the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and start watching today at CassidyCash.com app. That's CassidyCash.com slash A-P-P. Hi, I'm Susan Abernathy, historian at thefreelancehistorywriter.com. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. It was originally set up to cope with the flotsam and jetsam of the leisure industry. Essentially, people who got drunk and started fights over either prostitutes or gambling. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. According to the Oxford Companion to Shakespeare, edited by Stanley Wells and Michael Dobson, the phrase the clink described a specific prison in an area of London called Bankside, where Shakespeare is known to have lived at least from 1596 to 1597. The prison itself was housed inside what used to be a manor house owned by the Bishop of Winchester. It was the closest prison to the theaters of Bankside, which included the Globe and the Rose Theater, among others. This prison was best known for being a prison for debtors. While Shakespeare's works do reference the word clink to describe the sound of metal clanging against another metal, there's no direct reference to the prison by name. However, in Cymbeline, Act 3, Scene 3, Guiderius says, quote, a prison for a debtor that not dares to stride a limit, end quote. While Shakespeare may or may not have been referring to the debtor's prison located right down the road from his theater with this remark in the play, nonetheless, the clink itself was a notorious house of incarceration during Shakespeare's lifetime. Legendary as an entirely horrible place, the prison gained a reputation for being where prisoners were sent to die. Stories are told of prisoners being left in their cells to starve to death or even drown in the rising tide of the Thames that was nearby. The prison's notoriety is the reason why we use the phrase thrown into the clink today to mean that someone has gone to prison. No one knows the full history of the clink prison and what it was like for Shakespeare better than the curator at the clink prison museum, London, and our guest this week, Alex Lyon. In 2011, Alex Lyon joined the Clink Prison Museum as historian in residence for the restructuring of the museum and remains there as head of box office and tour guide. Last year, he began work as a photographic London history hunter. Find more about Alex in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the show. Hiya. How did the Clink Prison get its name? Why is it called the Clink? Okay. It comes from the sound of the hammer closing the rivet on the manacle or shackle that's either around your wrist wrist or your ankle. 
if you hit an anvil with a hammer, it makes a very clear sound clink in the same way that if I do that, it makes a sound that says smack or clap, but clink. It also works in the language with when we clinch a deal on the downstroke of the handshake or when at an auction we go going, going, gone. It's a moment of transition between, in this case, somebody being free and somebody being a prisoner. That's the clink. That's the moment. And you could even extend the idea when you're paying your taxes, you flip the coin, it goes in the tax gatherer's box. Does it cease to be yours when it leaves your hand or when it hits the bottom of the box? That's the moment of transition. Uh, Like going from a putative deal to a done deal. The other, this is complicated, the other use of clink is a Flemish word for latch, K-L-I-N-K, clink. And that was current because in 1500, when the name got applied to the prison, there were a lot of women in Bankside working in the leisure industry who'd come over from Flanders and therefore spoke Flemish. The clink was originally a prison inside the manor house owned by the Bishop of Winchester. Did most manor houses have their own prison like this? Why was a bishop of the church licensed to imprison people? This needs a bit of unraveling. He was a bishop. He was the most powerful bishop in the church in England at the time. The bishopric of Winchester is right on the top shelf of bishoprics. Above that, you start being an archbishop. There's only two of them, York and Canterbury. And he had built himself a palace on what is now Clink Street. Then it was facing the river. Because he wanted to be close to the seat of power, he wanted to be close to London. So that's why he built it there. And the land he built it on happened to be where Londoners went to party and had done for a very long time, like as long as there was London and responsible, respectable people in it who didn't want to see the distritus of the leisure industry on their nice streets where the French ambassador might gossip about it. So the leisure industry creates a certain amount of crime, generally stuff of the short shelf life. People get drunk, people have fights. So you've got to put them somewhere overnight so that they can sober up and you can try them in the morning when the magistrate's sober as well. So that was the first reason for the prison being there. It wasn't particularly tied tied to him being a bishop or not a bishop. He was simply the local landowner with a problem of a significant amount of local law breaking, which you need a holding facility for in order to keep people safe until you can put them on trial. Because if you just say to somebody when you found them drunk at 11 o'clock at night, you'd be at the court at 9 o'clock on Monday morning. They're going to run away (laughs) if they remember. So you need that holding facility. And my employer describes the clink as England's first prison, and I think he's right. But that also needs qualifying in that... We had prisons in this country before when the Romans were here, but in those days it wasn't England, it was Britain. 
because the Angles hadn't arrived to change the name to England. And after that, you need to be absolutely clear about what you mean by prison, because a prison isn't a village lockup, and it's not a castle dungeon. It's a building whose sole function is to keep a lot of prisoners in, generally above ground. It's not a an adjunct to another building. It's it's a thing in and of itself. So that's how it's England's first prison. The Oxford Companion to Shakespeare describes the clink as being known, quote, particularly as a debtor's prison, end quote. But when looking over the list of known inmates at the clink throughout the 16th century, provided at the Clink Prison Museum website that we'll link to in the show notes for today, there are men imprisoned for not going to church or for being involved in the Babington plot. And even one man, John Greenwood in 1586, who was imprisoned, quote, for reading scripture. Alex, exactly what kind of crime would land someone in the clink? When I started working at the clink, one of the things I had in mind was that prison, whenever, of whatever society, is a negative image of the society that creates it. It's the people that the society doesn't want, for whatever reason, and for breaking whatever set of rules, and the rules change as the centuries go on. By the time somebody was sitting down writing down the clink was primarily a debtor's prison, it no longer existed. And it had been a debtor's prison latterly, so that is solely a debtor's prison latterly, by default. As I mentioned earlier on, it was originally set up to cope with the flotsam and jetsam of the leisure industry. Essentially, people who got drunk and started fights over either prostitutes or gambling. But once you get into the 13th century, they passed the Statute of Acton Bernal, which is the law against being in debt, which essentially said that if you owed money, somebody could sue you. And if you didn't cough up the cash, they could have you locked up until you paid them. And on the face of it, this seemed like a fair idea. It's only when you actually put it into practice and people have to start coping with it that it becomes the massive nightmare that it was for about 600 years. Because once you're locked up, you can't earn money. And you might hope that your friends pay your debt for you, but it's a lot easier to forget somebody if they're locked in prison and your friends can die or they can move away. Well, they can just decide they're not your friend anymore, whatever. So that became, debt became part of the prison world as far back as the 13th century as a kind of thing in the background. It's just another thing that you can get put in prison for. But with debt, you're in for long term. Whereas most of the other crimes, they don't want to keep you in long term because prison's expensive. They want to try you either find you guilty or acquit you. And if they find you guilty, they're not going to stick you back in prison. They'll do something cheap. Put you in the stocks, pillory you, hang you, whip you. It's all cheap and it's quick. Now, by the 16th century, there's been Henry VIII and the split with Rome. This pulls faith, personal faith, into the realm of the state. There had been a little 
flirtation with this under Henry IV, who passed the law that you could burn people to death for heresy because he had a downer on the Lollards. They wanted the Bible translated into English. But with Henry VIII, it becomes a lot more live and a lot nastier, partly because Henry VIII was bombed as a bedbug. Very, very nasty guy with far too much power. And people started getting put in prison because they might have had ideas that Henry disagreed with. Because surrounding Henry, there was an awful lot of very paranoid, scared people, some of whom were bullies in their own right. So, so that there's that knock-on effect. So that's why people were getting imprisoned under Henry. When Henry's son Edward becomes king, he's a Protestant. He shifts the whole country firmly across Protestantism, but he's only on the throne for six years. He dies. Henry's eldest daughter, Mary, takes over. We've got the Counter-Reformation. She shifts the whole lot back to Catholicism. And when people don't want to be Catholic anymore, go back to being Catholic, she started locking them up and then setting fire to them. Initially, I think, with the hope that, oh, well, I'll burn four and everybody will be good then. But they didn't. I think the first one, and I believe he was locked in the clink because he was a prisoner of the Bishop of Winchester, Stephen Gardner, was John Rogers, and he had translated the Bible into English. So that was why he got held in the clink, and he was eventually burned for heresy. They'd hang, draw, and quarter you for treason, burn you for heresy. It's important not to confuse the two. So that's why people in the 16th century were getting locked up for essentially crimes of faith. But once you get into the 17th century, certainly into the 1640s, while the heat isn't on Catholics nearly so much, we've got a civil war going on. And the clink becomes a POW facility. Southwark was very strongly parliamentarian. You've got this huge bishop's palace. By then, the Bishop of Winchester has, he's not living in the palace anymore. He's gone back to Winchester. He's, he's living in his palace there. He's out of Southwark. I believe the last one to live there was in 1624, Lancelot Andrews, who died in 24. So then it becomes a POW facility until the end of the Civil War. And then there's the Commonwealth, and then there's the Restoration, with Charles II coming back in 1660. And the whole country goes, hey, it's party time again. So Bankside has this little resurgence as the heart of the London leisure industry. But it all goes completely square-shaped in 1666 because London catches fire. And after that, in order to rebuild the city, Bankside has to turn back into a builder's yard, which was essentially what it was when the, London, when the Romans were building Londinium. And that knocks the leisure industry on the head. So you haven't got leisure-related crime. So that is when it becomes a debtor's prison by default, because there's nobody le else left to keep there. because. <laughs> The religious crimes are no longer so treated so harshly. The civil war is over. 
So all your other ingredients for prison soup have disappeared. You've only got the debtors left. That's why it's remembered as a debtor's prison. Shakespeare seems to have a direct life connection with the clink through his associate, shall we call him, William Houghton, who was an actor and a playwright with Philip Henslow and Edward Allen. He was imprisoned in the clink in 1599. Alex, what was Houghton imprisoned for? As far as I know, he was just in for debt. He owed somebody money and they pressed a suit and he didn't pay, so they chucked him in prison. How long he was in, I'm not quite sure. The records are a bit sketchy, but. We can only hope he was out quickly and back earning money on the stage, which if he was a good actor, somebody like Philip Henslow might very well have stumped up to get him out. For it to be a prison right there in the heart of what you could reasonably call the theatre district there of Southwark, it's surprising to me that there aren't more records of actors being imprisoned. I think the, the main problem is, apart from Henslow's diary, we haven't got a great deal about the day-to-day running of a 16th, 17th century theatre land. We've got this, the texts. We've got some excellent books. I, I recommend Anthony Holden's book, Shakespeare. But the actual day-to-day records are very sketchy. It's 400-year-old stuff, and if it's not in the British Library, We just hope it's going to get discovered again because we haven't got it. While Shakespeare doesn't refer to the clink specifically in his works, one prison term from the 16th and 17th century he does use frequently is the word gaoler, which means jailer in modern English. Jailer, yeah. It's a soft view, it's jailer. So it is pronounced the same way, jailer and jailer. It's just spelled differently. So they're homonyms. English language is there to confuse foreigners, for goodness sake. (laughs) Well, apparently it confuses us Southerners here in Alabama, too. (laughs) In Cymbeline Act 1, Scene 1, the Queen says, you're my prisoner, but your jailer shall deliver you the keys that lock up your restraint, end quote. At the Clink prison, it was well known that the jailers were not very well paid. Thus, their want for money meant that they could easily be bribed and even had something of a business running out of the Clink. Alex, when prisoners in the Clink wanted food or special privileges, what kind of options were available for those prisoners who could afford to bribe the guards? It's as old as Joseph in the jail in the Old Testament, and it's as contemporary as what's going on now or what's in the Shawshank Redemption. It's just the way jails are. Um, Since the establishment of the Home Office, when they they put British prisons under that government control, of course, things are are better and more legally run and follow better procedures. But in the days of the clink, keeping a jail was a cushy job for an old soldier, you know, old fellow who's done good service in the low countries, keep my jail for me. Okay, the money's a bit rubbish, but everything else works on kickbacks. For instance, there's a blacksmith there putting irons on people. He's charging the people to put the irons on. And they will pay, because if they don't pay, they don't get out of the prison. 
and the jailer's the one who got him the job, so he's on a kickback from every job the blacksmith does. There's one story of a Jesuit, I think, who was doing the keeper's accounts, very much like Shawshank Redemption, and he had a nice room. That is to say he had a room that was probably up at the top of the building that as far as you could get away from the Thames water in the cellars, which would have stunk fit to raise the dead. And he was doing the keeper's accounts and he had a library and he had some nice furniture and he was living quite a reasonable life. And to some extent, providing they had a good idea that you were going to come back at the end of the day, they might let you out to do whatever business you needed to do. That's out into the big world. But they want to make sure you're coming back again. So it really depends on the imagination of the keeper and how what rackets he can find to enrich his own position. And we're just next door to the London leisure industry and the river. So there's plenty of stuff to keep an imagination busy. So essentially, it's a nice little racket if you know how to work a, work a racket. That's really how it works. The Clink Prison Museum is now a tourist attraction in London based on the actual history of the Clink Prison, and the museum features a wide variety of torture scenes. Alex, were things like the cage and other torture devices standard equipment at the Clink during Shakespeare's lifetime? No. No, absolutely not. What torture gadgetry we've got at the Clink is to illustrate the nastier end of the prison system, which was really just going on at the Tower. One of the problems with certainly English history is that it's been distorted. I mean, history is always distorted by one thing or another. Uh, One of the big distortions we've got is Victorian Penny Dreadful writers. Penny Dreadfuls were cheap novels quickly produced to sell quickly at a low cost, and it was a way of entertaining the newly literate working class because they only started sending everybody to school in the mid to late 19th century. So this is where a lot of the ideas about torture that we've received come from. They they were written to sell cheap Victorian fiction. The idea that every... English castle had a torture chamber. It's nonsense for what it wasn't. We have those in American history in the 19th century. We, we called that same thing a, a dime novel. Yeah, that's the one, a dime novel. And it's easy to say the problem is because it's not a problem. It's a good thing. I'm glad that my country has had a really good human rights record. <laughs> um, and it goes right back in history to... Henry II, who became king after a civil war between his uncle and his mother. His uncle Stephen had been the king because he was a man, whereas the rightful heir had been Matilda, his mum. And at the end of the civil war, the deal was cut that Henry II would become king next. But during a civil war, justice and procedure goes to the wall. 
and with the Normans in charge, it'd never been a great priority anyway. So it had been a case that if your local lord of the manor turned up at your house in the middle of the night, told you that you'd broken the law, he could then hang you from the tree in your garden and nobody could do anything about it. And that was law. What happened with Henry II was he said, right, OK, everybody, 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 stop fighting, stop fighting, be quiet for a minute, time out. Tell you what, first thing, if you get arrested, they've got to tell you what you're charged with. And you've got to be allowed a trial with a jury. And if they don't do them things, I'll make them let you go. And this is the like, cornerstone of the British justice system. It's why we've got in every courthouse, sitting behind the judge, hanging behind the judge, there's the royal coat of arms hanging on the wall there. And that's why, that's, that's what's underpinning the whole thing. But the point with the jury, and it's really important, and it's easy to overlook it, there's 12 people sat there in that jury box. If you're standing in the dock and you've got a broken nose and a thick ear, somebody's going to go, have they tortured you? Not guilty. It's very important because it places the onus on the prosecution not to torture the defendant. And that's the bottom line that the country's been running on ever since. Okay. You could also say that in every police station, every police station in the world, somebody's been tortured in there somewhere. Because you can have a detective with a deadline at some time who's looked at a desk drawer and thought, well, if I just threaten to shut his fingers in there, he'll talk. But that's a different ballgame. The thing where people were officially tortured as part of a government regime really started with the installation of the rack in the Tower of London in 1447. And the justification for that was that there was civil war or threatened civil war between the House of Lancaster and the House of York. And it was the Lancastrians installed it, incidentally. So that's the justification. Henry II was essentially saying, I will not torture my loyal subjects. But if somebody is considered to be not a loyal subject, like if they're a danger to national security, then they can be taken to the Tower and the right paperwork needs to be produced before you can do what is essentially extrajudicial questioning involving these procedures. So that's the long answer to your short question, were people tortured in the clink? The answer is not very much and certainly not officially. Well, you've mentioned that in order to get out of the clink, there was the option of paying off the blacksmith to remove your shackles and and let you go. But I wonder what happened to people who had served their sentence at the clink. Would they be released back into society? Were any of them ever shipped to the Virginia colonies? Or was being sent to the clink always a death sentence, where if you ended up there, you were going to be executed for your crime? No, definitely not executed. Definitely not. The clink really was... It was your, your corner cop shop. It was the it was the local police station, effectively. It was, and the thing about paying the the, jet, the the blacksmith to take your shackles off, he's only going to do that when the jailer says he can. And there is going to be a bill at the end of your stay, which you're going to need to get settled somehow. But the jailer's probably not stupid. He'll think of some way around. 
sort of mutually. But certainly being put in the clink wasn't a death sentence. It was a nasty medieval prison, but people got out of it. Because if people, you can't leave people in to, to let them die, if only because for a very, very long time, we've had a system where people are entered into par- parish registers when they're born and they're written off them when they die. And it all has to be recorded. So it can't be a, a disappearing place. Uh, just because the law doesn't work like that. But certainly, no, people, some people were taken away and executed, definitely. Some people were taken away and whipped. Some people were just let go because they were innocent. It really wasn't as, as dramatic as, as history would like, some history would like us to believe. Well, I know we would love to explore the history of the clink further. And you've mentioned one book by Anthony Holden called Shakespeare that we will link to in the show notes for today's episode. But I wondered if you could share with us some of your favorite books and resources we should use to learn more about the clink prison. Oh, look, about prison in it's my interest is more about prison in general. And it's sort of because prisons are have been with us since we really started to have civilization because of uh, because the way that civilization works. We have to have a, a justice system to accommodate people that don't fit into the systems that we want everybody to live with. Useful books about prison. The book about the clink is called In the Clink, published in 1976 by E.J. Burford. That's still available on eBay and Amazon, if you can find it. Other useful books I've read about crime and prisons are generally rather more contemporary. I know that there are other good books. So an excellent read, and it's not connected to the clink, but it, it is very useful about the way that prisons operated. There's a book called Execution of Pierpoint which I've found very useful and informative, and it's by Albert Pierpoint, who was one of the last and certainly one of the most prolific hanged men in the history of the British penal system. We will link to these resources as well as more information on the Clink Museum that you can see in the show notes for today's episode. Now, Alex, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I think I would probably say Night Watch by Terry Pratchett. It's one of his Discworld novels. It's set in Ankh-Morpork around the city watch and it involves Captain Sam Vimes being sent back in time to impersonate his mentor, his own mentor, in his past. So he is pretending to be somebody else, teaching his younger self how to be a cop in a quasi-medieval city. Wow, that sounds exciting. It is. It's a good book. Well, we'll link to that one in the show notes for today as well. So you can check out Alex's Desert Island selection. Alex, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm trying to publicize my film, which is a film of Macbeth, which I made in my hometown in 2018, which, if you want to find it, it's on YouTube called Kids. If you type in Kids Grove Macbeth, 
that's my my meaning and I want to publicise that and get more people to see it because it's our film with a Scottish play done with a mixed ability cast in a little town in the north of England on a budget of 500 quid. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds exciting. Well, we will link to that in the show notes for today as well so you can learn more about Alex and check out his version of Macbeth. Thank you so much, Alex Lyon, for being here and walking us through the history of the Clink prison known as the most notorious medieval prison in England. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. See pictures of the Clink Prison Museum in London today, along with links to Alex's film and more information on the most notorious medieval prison in England, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. When you stop by the show notes, be sure to leave a comment and let us know what you thought about today's episode. And if you have a question we didn't answer for you on the show, feel free to leave a comment with your question as well, and we'll answer it right there in the comments from the show notes. Find all these things at castycash.com slash episode 182. That's castycash.com slash ep one. If you are as big of a fan of William Shakespeare as I am and you love learning about his history here on the show, then you will really love our video streaming app. The video streaming app here at That Shakespeare Life is packed full of bonus interviews, documentaries, animated plays, activities, games, and so much more. And right next to the videos, there's even printables and downloads that coordinate which each of the videos that you can find right there inside the app. If this sounds exciting to you, then come on inside the world of William Shakespeare with us and download That Shakespeare Life digital streaming app. You can get this at castacash.com slash app, and it is available on your computer, laptop, tablet, or phone. You can watch it, stream it, and take Shakespeare with you wherever you go. Sign up now at castacash.com slash app. That's castacash.com slash A-P-P. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.